Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. The scope of the societal impacts being both inflicted and uncovered by the COVID-19 pandemic are truly without precedence. At the end of June, 33 million Americans were receiving unemployment benefits, nearly five times the peak during the Great Recession. In parallel, the magnitude of racial injustices being perpetrated across our country is now in such clear focus that the fight to eradicate racism has entered a new and powerful chapter. With every disaster, whether it's an economic collapse or damage inflicted by a wildfire or hurricane, we're given a choice. Rebuild in the same pattern as before or reimagine a different future. The choice to rebuild is often fueled by a sense of nostalgia, a desire to reclaim what was lost. As we think about our collective tomorrow, there's a lot of the past we need to leave behind. If a peaceful, compassionate, equitable, and sustainable future is our goal, then we must undergo a careful assessment to ensure that our path forward doesn't rebuild the systems of violence, inequality, racism, and pollution that are corroding our society from the inside out. Refashioning a new future is full of promise, but we often don't take the bold steps necessary because of a fear of uncertainty. That's where big thinkers can help us. By navigating a path forward, they illuminate each of the steps of the journey, giving us the confidence needed to climb the highest peak. This week, we talked to Dr. Manuel Pastor, who's definitely one of those bold, big thinkers. Manuel is the University of Southern California's Distinguished Professor of Sociology, American Studies, and Ethnicity. He's the director of USC's Program for Environmental and Regional Equity and the director of USC's Center for the Study of Immigration Integration. I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Pastor on environmental justice issues for the past decade, and he is no ordinary academic. He works directly with communities to gain their wisdom and advocates directly with policymakers to get them to move towards community goals. Dr. Pastor is the author of State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. And with Chris Benner, he authored This Could Be the Start of Something Big, How Social Movements for Regional Equity Are Reshaping Metropolitan America and just growth, inclusion, and prosperity in America's metropolitan regions. Dr. Pastor is working with both Los Angeles and the state of California to develop policies to help move towards a more just, equitable, and sustainable post-COVID future. Dr. Pastor has been tracking the impact of the pandemic on African-American and Latinx communities in California and nationally. I start by asking Manuel about the data that's just been released on this topic by the Centers for Disease Control. Well, the incredible statistic coming out today was that for uh, Latinos between the ages of 40 and 59, the rate of contracting cases of COVID is five times that for whites in the same age group. We're certainly seeing this in California as well, where Latinos make up 43% of the population 18 to 49, kind of prime working age, 
but 73% of the deaths. And the reasons for this are pretty clear. You know, COVID is the disease that reveals our fundamental illness as a society. Uh, the precarity of employment and the lack of assets that made a lot of people kind of rush back to work because that's the only way they could get income. Difficulties with legal status, which has meant in particular for immigrant Latinos that they are worried about where their next dollar is coming from. They're not getting a federal relief in terms of unemployment insurance. They're not getting the federal relief check. And in fact, if you're in a family where two people filed a tax return, one person with a social security number and the other with what's called an individual taxpayer identification number, an ITIN, which is how undocumented people file their tax returns, that family unit is excluded from the $1,200 per person checks. And so are their children who are not getting the $500 relief checks. So this is a population that's been particularly desperate to go to work. Now, there are big disparities as well for African-Americans, but I've been predicting that this is something that would rip its way, particularly through the immigrant Latino community. And that's what the data released today from the CDC seems to be showing. And Manuel, you've spent your career on this issue of kind of how everything from your zip code to your socioeconomic status to race has such a huge impact on everything from mortality to whether you're going to be next to a wastewater treatment plant or your air is going to be good or bad. So all these underlying vulnerabilities are are pre-existing to your point. It it isn't that COVID-19 created them, but it's exacerbating them. You know, COVID sort of ripped the veil. Interestingly, this has happened before. So for example, Hurricane Katrina uh, ripped the veil with regard to the level of environmental risk folks in the Lower Ninth Ward were subject to when the hurricane came along. And also it ripped the veil on the racial wealth gap, because one of the reasons why a lot of Black folks in New Orleans stayed behind was to protect their homes, which was the only kind of asset they had, or because they lacked access to a car and transport and couldn't get out of New Orleans. But, you know, frequently these events are sort of local or regional New Orleans, you know, revealed underlying any racial inequalities in terms of environmental exposure. One thing that's been different in the spring and summer of 2020 is that COVID was nationwide. It revealed the underlying lack of health insurance for African Americans and in particular for Latinos. It revealed the precarity of employment, all the things I mentioned. And then came the murder of George Floyd, which, while it occurred in Minneapolis, Minnesota, was something that rippled nationwide. And it made it very clear that racist policing is just the tip of a racist iceberg in terms of underlying disparities with economic uh, conditions, with social conditions, and even with environmental conditions. George Floyd actually had two jobs in Minneapolis, both in the restaurant industry, and had just lost both of them as a result of the COVID crisis and was economically desperate uh, at the time that he was accused of passing a counterfeit $20 bill by a store clerk and then found himself murdered on the streets of Minneapolis. 
So I think we're in a really unusual moment, Jared, in which these pre-existing conditions, the racist structure of opportunity in our society, have just been laid bare by the combination of the COVID crisis and this awareness around racist policing. All of that came on top of three and a half years of people of color and America as a whole and science being battered by the Trump administration. So that people were feeling already very frustrated, very aware of these conditions. And then along comes COVID and the murder of George Floyd. So when you think about the the first quote that you had about from the CDC, it seems like what we're exposing is that the people that underpin our society, which we're now calling essential workers, the people that have to go to work, the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, are the very people that we're relying on and are getting infected. Like how it, it seems like it, we're not learning the lesson that they're essential. We're learning two lessons that I hope stick and then maybe a few more. Uh, one is the other day I was giving a presentation about this data and one of the people listening to me on Zoom said, well, you know, this uh, double the death rate for African-Americans. Isn't that really a function of obesity and hypertension? And I said, but isn't obesity and hypertension a function of structural racism, which creates food deserts in uh, black communities and also leads to the tremendous stress of being African-American in the United States? So I think one thing that's really an interesting realization is people are no longer trying to make excuses for the pattern of structural racism that leads to the comorbidities, that leads to the death rates that we're seeing. But the second thing, and you're absolutely right, is we're finding out what essential work is. And it's not being the manager of a hedge fund, even though that's highly rewarding. Uh, it's being a healthcare worker, to be sure, or a grocery store clerk, or a janitor who keeps our uh, buildings clean, or an orderly who makes sure that everything is orderly in the hospital in terms of healthcare, or a farm worker who's making sure that food is making its way to our table, or a delivery driver. And I think people are beginning to realize that this essential work has become, in a sense, sacrificial work. Sacrificial in terms of the risks to COVID, but also when you think about it, the kind of pay that we've associated with this work. Um, we take the most important work, for example, the care of our elders, uh, the home care, the elder care, a part of the caring economy, and we reward it with poor wages, difficult working conditions, and a lack of respect for that work and a lack of dignity awarded to the people who do it. One of the things that I hope that we take away from this crisis is what truly is essential work. A second thing I hope that we take away from this crisis is that we are only as healthy as the least protected amongst us. So when uh, folks in immigrant communities, in disadvantaged communities, in difficult working conditions, don't get the PPE that they need, then they're going to get sick and that uh, impacts everyone. And the last thing I hope we take away from this crisis is that government, so often disparaged, is the backstop to a good society. Unless we have public health measures that protect everyone, we're not going to wind up protecting even the most privileged amongst us. Unless 
government creates the conditions for the economy to reopen safely through testing, contact tracing, and a number of other measures, we're not going to have a robust private sector. So this long-standing debate about is it the public sector or is it the private sector that drives our economy and society forward, you can only have that kind of debate if you cannot hold two ideas in your head at the same time. One is that the public sector is critical, and yes, the private sector is as well. On science alone, it just feels like the campaigns, particularly focused on climate change and tobacco before that, have so distorted the role and the importance of science that we now have people saying, well, this mask is kind of a liberal conspiracy, when there's clear science, clear epidemiology around the importance of wearing a mask, and yet there's been so much false advertising that it's it's almost as if we have to start from scratch to explain to people the importance of science. It's, it's a bizarre time we're living in. You know, and I think you're thinking about science in a way that's somewhat constrained, because the other science that's been ignored, particularly in the last three and a half years, but for a long time, is that if you live in a community with immigrants, you're actually safer. We've got good science showing us that when you pay people the minimum wage, it's difficult for them to be able to survive. And that when you raise that minimum wage, they not only make a little bit more, but often they work a little bit less, spend a little bit more time with their children, assist them a little bit more at school. And that's good for generational improvement going forward. We've got good science telling us that if we invest in young people in terms of a good education and a safe community, that they will thrive and our society will thrive. So just like we've ignored the climate science, just like people are trying to ignore the science around public health and the importance of uh, wearing a mask and uh, using physical distancing and all of the other measures that we're trying to put in place, We've ignored the science around how inequality is actually damaging for our economic prosperity in the long run. And we've ignored the science about how racism and othering is actually a corrosive to our society. I've often wondered about the role of environmental racism and preventing us from recognizing how it is that environmental conditions can impact everyone. Looping back to Hurricane Katrina, the lower ninth ward was not protected because it was thought that this was black space, working class space, the space of poor people. But when the lower ninth ward was not protected, it wound up making it weaker for the rest of the levees to be able to protect the rest of New Orleans and smoked an entire city. So we are ignoring science around climate change. We're ignoring science around public health, but we've ignored science for a long time around economic and racial inequality and how damaging it is for all of us. So talking of science, you're a social scientist, uh, sociologist. Um, how did you get into this in the first place? Tell us about where you grew up and, and what was the evolution that led you to become a professor of sociology? Well, it's an interesting question. I actually have a PhD in economics. That's what I got my PhD in. And I moved to sociology because I was so frustrated with economics because economics, uh, 
assumed that people acted just out of their self-interest when you know that people also act out of mutuality and things are actually better. Uh, economics, when it looked at issues of racism, said, don't worry, the market will compete that away. And I figured after a couple of hundred years of the market not competing away racism, maybe there was something wrong with economics and we needed to turn to other disciplines. So I wound up spending a lot of time moving into areas like geography, uh, political science, and sociology. So I value what I got trained with as an economist, which was a sort of rigorous attempt to look at the data. But I became frustrated with the fact that economists didn't do a rigorous look at the data and wind up thinking about how mutuality could benefit people, about how problems of racism and environmental degradation persist over time. The personal story is that I'm the son of an immigrant, uh, actually an undocumented immigrant who came to the country in the 1930s with papers that were not perfect and wound up getting his path to citizenship when he was given a choice between being deported or joining the U.S. Army. Um, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, east of East Los Angeles. Um, and a couple things about that I think were very formative for me. One, my dad, who had a sixth grade education, was the smartest person I'd ever met, but found it very difficult to get ahead because, you know, of basically of racism in the labor market, not thinking that he could actually move ahead or really recognizing his intelligence. So one of the things about that is it made me realize that intelligence isn't just in the academy, it's often in the community. And it really crafted a kind of academic career. I've done a lot of work with community-based groups. And I don't do it out of noblesse or pleasure or out of charity. I do it because these are some of the smartest people I've ever met. They're like my dad and my mom. And they've got tremendous wisdom about the problems that affect them. They've got tremendous ideas about the solutions that might improve their situation, but they just don't have access to the power to be able to do something about it. And someone like me who can deliver research is, I think, a really important complement to that. When I first started doing my academic work at Occidental College in LA in the 1980s, I got asked as an economist to work with a group that was trying to raise the minimum wage in the state of California. And I was asked to develop research on whether or not it would impact the economy negatively. Turns out the answer was no. And they used that argument to raise the minimum wage in the state of California in the late 1980s, transferring several billion dollars of income to uh, low-income working people over the course of a few years. What was more powerful was watching the community residents and leaders recognize that if you raise the minimum wage, uh, low-income people would spend it on food. And because of that, they went and lobbied the head of the grocery store association to support an increase in the minimum wage. He said he couldn't do it because raising the minimum wage was anti-capitalist. They said, that's fine. We're going to shop at your store tomorrow. And he said, I don't know. Why, why is that a threat? Well, the next day they went to a store. They shopped with pennies. Jared, if you've ever seen anybody shop with pennies, it basically completely slows the lines down. That. And yeah. after a day of seeing his business completely frozen by community activists, the head of the grocery store association came out in favor of an increase in the minimum wage. And what I, it's a long story. But Great. what's important about that story is that what I realized is that no matter how good my research was, no matter how 
clearly tethered it was to data. And no matter what fancy regression techniques I used, it would never actually move the needle on policy unless it was connected with community-based organizing that was trying to shift the power terrain and use the research as part of it. That confluence of those two strands, academic research and community-based knowledge has really made you an incredibly effective and powerful voice for those communities. As you think about, and and you're on both the statewide economic recovery task force and the, the city and county of LA's economic recovery task force, you've talked very eloquently about how it's so important not to rebuild, but to refashion how we view society going forward. We've realized that recovery shouldn't be reversion. We don't want to go back to a situation with all of the pre-existing conditions that we mentioned. We really want to reimagine what does community safety look like when there's a mental health crisis going on? How do we get a mental health counselor there? When a person who's been driving uh, while they were drunk, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, and the police show up, how do they just allow that person to get back to their house safely rather than wind up threatening them with arrest in a way that makes them fearful, run, and wind up getting shot by police along the way. This is an incredible moment to reimagine and then to restructure, to think about what a new world might look like economically, and then what are the structures that are going to get us there? Uh, what would it mean to take seriously reversing decades of racial inequality? Would it involve reparations, which is actually something that people are beginning to talk about? Would it begin looking systematically at the way that banks have stripped assets away, particularly from Black homeowners, but also from Latino homeowners? Would it mean us understanding how this system of over-incarceration, over-policing and over-incarceration has led to uh, roughly a quarter of young black men carrying around a record, which makes it difficult for them to jump back into the labor market and be successful. And that if we really want to rebuild, we need to target in on that kind of a problem and make sure that they've got kind of first entree to the jobs that we are opening. It does it lead us to understand that even if the nation is not going to act on comprehensive immigration reform of the undocumented folks who live in California, about 2.4 million, 70% of them have been in the country for a decade or longer. They're deeply established with families. Uh, they're deeply embedded into businesses and to communities. How do we create working systems that allow undocumented Californians to be able to get ahead? to access Medi-Cal, to be able to have some access to the systems of relief that we've been putting in place. We've been taking baby steps in these directions. It's time for us to step further into the water of social justice. So in terms of those goals of not playing in the margins and really taking bold, swift action. You've been spending time going out to communities. You're talking, you're hearing what they're saying. What are the ideas that you feel like will, will get traction? What are the things that are going to help fundamentally reprioritize and help shift society to be more equitable and just and hopefully a bit more sustainable? 
Well, sustainable is an important part of it. I do think that there's a couple of things that are going to be really crucial. First is to take the opportunity to be bold in our visions. We often constrain ourselves by what's realistic. I'm a very realistic person, but we really are the fifth largest economy in the world in California. We attract more than 50% of the country's venture capital. We are the hub for innovation, and we can invent an app to do just about anything, but we haven't been able to solve homelessness. That doesn't seem right. A rich, innovative economy ought to bring its full technological uh, and economic prowess to solving these problems. So a couple of things I think are going to be really crucial moving forward. One is we need to figure out how to pay for it. And I think one of the things that California should be thinking about is what are the kinds of wealth taxes that need to be in place? Uh, we are a hub of innovation. This innovation takes place because of our public investments in knowledge production. If you take your iPhone and you take it apart, 50% of that is from public investments in knowledge production, including the internet, that Apple is able to capitalize on. How do we think about a data dividend that would wind up then helping to fund a universal basic income? It might also be a data dividend on the fact that our newest social media platforms are basically making money from the data that you and I provide. So we're providing it, but we're getting no return from it. So how do we begin to think about taxing that kind of thing? How do we begin to realize that the biggest challenge in our economy demographically is not the fact that we're changing in terms of our ethnicity. In California, that's actually pretty much over. What California looks like now demographically is pretty close to what we'll look like in about 20 years. That's not true for the rest of the country. They're catching up with California. But the biggest change in California is that we're aging. In the year 2010, about 11% of our population was 65 years old or older. By the year 2060, that's about a quarter of our population. So um, we're going to have a bigger caring economy for older folks in terms of care workers. Also, for those of us who are working, we're going to need much more flex time to be able to care for our elders and care for our kids. How do we make immigrant integration a central goal of the California economy? I think there's lots of tasks that we can lay out in front of us. We need to be bold, and then we also need to figure out how to pay for it. And then also, how do we get the private sector to lead on this? I think we're in a kind of once-in-a-lifetime moment. If you look at the number of private sector leaders who are going, oh my gosh, I didn't realize racism was so deep and so ingrained in our economy. I want to try to do something about it, but I don't know what to do about it. We need to have that conversation where the private sector can do its part as well as the public sector. And in doing this, we need to understand that when we are talking about economic and racial equity, it's something that needs to be fundamental to the economy. Going back to our essential worker discussion, when I think about the fact that teachers, the people that look after the elderly, the people that work in restaurants are paid basically not even a living wage in many cases in our state, whereas tech bros in San Francisco, we're paying them by some bizarre 
rationale of how much money they can make. So this sense that led you to move from economics to sociology, the invisible hand that that is often described isn't really working. So what what can we do in the recovery to help value the people that are doing the most valuable work? So I think it's important to start by understanding that the invisible hand is actually a closed fist of power. It's important to recognize that in the last 40 years, average worker productivity in the state of California has gone up by over 90%, but median wages in the state have flatlined. So it's not just a question of people in certain niches in the labor market that are doing badly because they're less educated or people in the upper echelons of the labor market doing better because they got a degree in programming from Stanford. It's that the share of income between corporations and labor has shifted dramatically. And if we had just seen everything continue to rise with average productivity, a lot of those workers in the sectors that you're caring about, yes, they'd be less rewarded than someone in high tech, but they'd be decently paid right now. So the big problem has been an imbalance of power over policymaking and a sort of acceptance that what is resulting is somehow an act of nature rather than really an act of social engineering that's taken place. So one of the things that I think is absolutely uh, critical is for us to continue to try to do three things at the same time. One is to lift the bottom, to figure out what are the measures we need to make sure that we're raising the minimum wage, we're guaranteeing access for everyone to health insurance, portable benefits, and the like. Second is growing the middle. How do we figure out what kind of jobs in the state of California really create a pathway to the middle class and make sure that our economic policies are geared to those. Some of those are in healthcare. Some of those are in advanced manufacturing. Some of those are in solar installation. Some of those are in the creation of a sustainable economy as we move away from a fossil fuel reliant economy. So lift the bottom, grow the middle. And then the third part of this is to drive the top, to try to figure out which industries are the industries of the future. One of the reasons why I think we should push for electrification, that can be a cleaner way to deliver energy. We need to figure out how to drive the top in terms of when we put out a mandate like that, we're helping to create a whole electrification strategy within the state of California. We're helping to create a company here, Tesla, that's actually cleaning up. It's now the most highly valued automotive company with the highest market capitalization. And even as we drive the top, we need to figure out how to tame the top. Because one of the problems with California and the nation has been the outsized influence of the very rich on public policy. They're not that much smarter than my father with a sixth grade education was about how you devise a decent society. And the fact that there's so much influence of the wealthy on our public policy is an imbalance that we need to correct. A huge thank you to Dr. Manuel Pastor for talking with us today. For decades before COVID, Dr. Pastor has been researching, thinking, and practicing how to create equitable, just, and environmentally sustainable societies. 
Today, Manuel shared with us some critical ideas that are foundational to reimagining a new post-COVID paradigm. The minute Professor Pastor starts talking, I immediately pick up my pencil and start taking notes. Here's what I wrote down. One, we're only as healthy as the least protected among us. Two, anti-science campaigns are not only targeting and ignoring the physical sciences, but also the social sciences. Three, after a couple of hundred years, the market has not competed away racism, so maybe there's something wrong with economics. Four, intelligence isn't just in the academy, it's often in the community. Five, our recovery shouldn't be a reversion, as we don't want to go back to a situation with all the negative pre-existing conditions. Six, we often constrain ourselves by what's realistic. Right now, we need to be bold. Seven, we're in a once-in-a-lifetime moment. The number of private sector leaders who are going, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that racism runs so deep and are ready to take action is a huge opportunity. Eight, in the last 40 years, average worker productivity in the state of California has gone up by 90%, but median wages in the state have flatlined. Nine, the big problem has been an imbalance of power over policymaking and an acceptance that the policy results are somehow an act of nature rather than an act of social engineering. And 10, our recovery needs to lift the bottom, grow the middle, and drive the top. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Please take care of yourself and have a great week.